Welcome to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Kelly. And I'm Dermot. And this is episode 20. Wow. Nice remnant. Yeah. Well, before we get into the main part of the episode, I guess we've got a few announcements. First one is we've got a new post up on the blog entitled Form of Forms. Dermot, you read that post. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what it's about? Aristotle, <laughs> uh, the soul. Um, Aristotle's view of the soul. Yes, they, from De Anima. Mm-hmm. Aristotle's very tricky to get your head around. I, I'm working on a project of my own. It's about philosophy, and he, I think he's the hardest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plato technically would be more esoteric, perhaps, but it's mm-hmm. easier to get your head around Plato. But Aristotle's writings are infamously hard to to parse because they're glorified lecture notes. Mm. And they weren't written to be, you know, read for pleasure. Mm-hmm. But James Joyce loved Aristotle. Mm. So if you are like me and you're kind of indifferent towards Aristotle, but you know that he has a lot of influence, it felt in Ulysses. Mm. And so you want to know more about Aristotle. I recommend reading that because I think I think I did all right. Yeah, no, Give I, me validation, I, please. I, <laughs> I was impressed because you didn't particularly have a lot of time to research on it. And I think, you know, you did a remarkable job. Um, I've been reading books for research for my project, and I've read book after book after book, and I wouldn't want to have to sit down and write, give you an exegesis on it. But everything that you wrote kind of fit with my general idea. So um, <laughs> <laughs> insofar as I have any knowledge of it, um, yeah, so there we go. Yeah, I, I felt really good when I finished that. It, yeah. it was every so often I, I get a real sense of accomplishment. Get a, a real buzz off of writing this every so often. That that was one of them. Mm. So check that out, and hopefully it will help you understand Ulysses better. Now, Aristotle's like a major influence on Aquinas as well. So mm-hmm. you know the, he kind of routes right into the uh, Catholic philosophy or theology or both, mm-hmm. and uh, so you it's can, a, kind of a key to the on the worldview. You can learn about that in the post because mm-hmm. yeah. definitely wrote about that. An announcement for all of our Pacific Northwest listeners, as. I'm sure any avid listeners of Blooms and Barnacles know I am very involved in a Ulysses book club here in Portland, Oregon, where we live. Uh, we're starting up another read-through of that on Monday, the 15th of July in 2019. So if you're listening to this way in the future, um, you missed the boat. But it'll be at 6 p.m. in the snug at T.C. O'Leary's Pub in Northeast Alberta, which, if you live in the area, is a spot you should know anyway if you're into Ulysses. So come by and join us. I hope to see you there. So let's get into the episode today. I'll talk about the Orange Order. Ah, yeah. So this, well, we're going to really talk about them on our next podcast. They're going to get front and center. Good. But they'll get a little intro today. So we're dealing with the section right after the last one. I don't have my books. I don't know what pages are. That's all right. But before we get into it, let's take a moment to remember that history is the art of Nestor. Every episode of Ulysses has an art. And the art of Nestor, the second episode, which we're reading now, is history. Mm. That's the uh, the correspondence. Yes. So each chapter has multiple correspondences, one of which is an art. Mm -hmm. The art of Telemachus. Theology. Mm Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember what theology <laughs> was called. <laughs> the Art of Nestor. History. History. Okay. So we get to talk about some historical stuff today. 
which is fun for me. I like talking about history. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's 19th century Irish history, which mm -hmm. is not some fun for me, but I'll give it a crack. Well, yeah, it's the, the topics we're covering aren't fun topics, mm. but they're interesting. You see, many other European countries had a lot of suffering, but at least there was some some, some sort of resolution or mm -hmm. high points. Like the French could show you massacres and revolutions and body piles like anybody else. But at least they got like a pretty cool country out of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 19th century Irish history is just like famine and plague and war mm -hmm. and defeat and defeated Home Rule Acts after Home Rule Acts and, mm -hmm. you know, heroes destroyed one after the other. And, you know... Oh, it's just desperate. I've I've got a, a question for you. Yeah. When was the last bubonic plague scare in Ireland? Uh, well, we used to have a graveyard in the middle of my hometown, and the folk w legends had it that it was the Black Death, mm -hmm. but it was from the middle of the 19th century, and like you know, years later, I found out no, no, that was cholera. That mm. was like 1848, I think. Yeah. And, because my town is very, Arklo is, is very uh, low-lying mm -hmm. uh, and flooded a lot. So obviously it was so vulnerable to cholera, but bubonic plague, I couldn't tell you. Take a guess. Um, Give me a year. 1690. 1900. Oh, for God's sake. Now, there was no plague recorded in Ireland that year, but there was an outbreak in Glasgow and there was a fear that it would get shipped to Ireland. Mm. Didn't make it. Mm. Stopped in Glasgow. They did all the right things in Scotland, so yeah. it didn't. They deep fried the Mars bars and uh, they killed the virus. <laughs> deep fried Mars bars are a known cure of plague. That's Good. that's yes. why everyone died in the Middle Ages because they didn't have <laughs> Mars bars or deep frying. <laughs> it's quite tragic. Yeah, nineteen hundred. Good God. Yeah, terrible. That's why I said plague scare and not mm, just plague. Plague. Okay. I don't know when the last time they had bubonic plague, but yeah, cholera um, was a big issue following the famine because it wasn't enough that. Millions of people died, mm. everyone's immune systems were weakened, and everything was poor, yep. and the water was poor quality, and corpses, cholera. Corpses rotting into water tables and God knows what. Yeah. So I think this is really like setting the tone nicely. For, no, that's good. Podcast. We should. Yeah, yeah. Like get yeah. Lower your expectations for yeah. a happy ending. That's my advice with Irish history. All right. So we're talking about Mr. Deasy and Dermot. Have you ever been to a holiday dinner with your family where there was some relative that was really keen to talk to you about politics that you didn't agree with but you had to listen to them anyway because they're your family i have a horrible feeling that i was that relative. <laughs> but no no we don't actually because i think that's more of an american thing mm. um like the whole thanksgiving ordeal that people inflict on themselves mm -hmm. and uh, you know uncle frank has to mouth off about whatever and um yeah no we just have little family get-togethers at like christmas or whatever mm -hmm. and we have some Bad turkey and... Uh, well, I will tell you the, the novel A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man opens with a family dinner devolving into a huge argument mm. over politics. So mm. maybe just uh, your, your family get along really well. Yeah, yeah. Or we're just all getting old. Because it on. wasn't really something we experienced either. Like, we definitely disagreed with things, but it was never politics. Mm. Yeah. So for those of you who do have a conservative uncle or other family member, maybe an aunt. Why do I have to gender it? Mm. <laughs> anyway, you have some crazy relative who won't stop talking to you about, you know, flat earth theory or something like that. You can't really escape them. You have to sit through the dinner uh, because if you're the one who storms out of Christmas dinner, then you'll be remembered as the one who ruined it and not Uncle Bob. Mm. You kind of have to listen to them because, again, they're there droning on. 
And uh, you really can't tell them to uh, get stuffed, as Dermot would say. Because, again, then you're the one who's ruining dinner. Yeah. So you just have to put up with them. You have to suck it up and just get through dinner. Alcohol helps. <laughs> that's, that's why there's always wine at Christmas. Mm. Mr. Deasy is kind of that. So the scene that we've set here is Stephen is in his office picking up his wages. And now he is trying to impart some wisdom onto Stephen. First about money and then about various other things. And this is this is Stephen's boss, so he can't really be like, yeah, I don't want to talk to you. Bye and leave. He kind of just has to put up with it. And so this this is a um, the the remainder of this chapter is really just Stephen sitting across from his boss, who is yammering on at him about various things. Stephen gives these little short pithy responses. Some of them are just in his own mind. He can't really say or do anything about it. He just has to wait for the moment to pass. Mm. Very, very frustrating. Yeah. Have you ever experienced that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. me too. Where I, yeah, somebody has been in a position, a, mm. a superior business position, and you just have mm. to keep your mouth shut. It's really soul-destroying. Sorry, I don't have my book in front of me. Um, I will put the page number in the episode notes. Um, but Mr. Deasy has just finished um, asking... Stephen, if, if he could boast that he, he paid his own way and, and never borrowed a shilling, and Stephen says, no, I can't, after he remembers all the, the debts that he owes. Mm -hmm. Since Stephen has more debts than savings, he says so, and Mr. Deasy replies with this. Dermot's going to read okay. this. I knew you couldn't, he said joyously, but one day you must feel it. We are a generous people, but we must also be just. I fear those big words, Stephen said, which makes us so unhappy. Zing! That's one of Stephen's uh, burns there. Mm. Sort of, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I fear... So this this line I wanted to toss in because it's a line from Ulysses people love to quote. Mm. You see it everywhere. Which, if, if you spend any time online in social media groups about Ulysses, people like to post memes in there like anywhere else, and this is one you'll see pop up. If you Google image search it, you'll see lots of like, like landscape photographs and like, <laughs> like backgrounds with soft colors that have this quote on them of yeah. all quotes. Yeah. I fear those big words which make us so unhappy. And I also found at Walmart, you can buy a poster of a woman standing in front of, I'm assuming a sunset with her arms flung wide, loving life, living it to its fullest. And above her, it says... I fear those big words Stephen said, which make us so unhappy. So for like 14 American dollars. <laughs> Laminated also. That, so, uh, yeah. yeah. So. That can be yours. I'll put that in the episode notes too, because that gave me a, a nice wow. big So, So my interpretation then, uh, a naive mm -hmm. interpretation, is Stephen's re re thought reply uh, is this is the usual bunkum you get from a British imperialist who's ransacked mm -hmm. the uh, country of Ireland uh, to profit themselves. And uh, and then they blame the victim. Mm -hmm. Would that be a correct reading of that? My thought was, is that many of the things that Deasy says, we are a generous people. Mm -hmm. We must also be just. <laughs> how How is he actually defining generosity and, and justice here? Uh, I would say taking away uh, all the natural resources of the island of Ireland, mm -hmm. um, selling them in a quote-unquote free market mm -hmm. uh, for the British Empire. Uh, basically doing what they did to every other colony, which mm -hmm. was looted. 
Um, you know, and I, I, I may, may have mentioned in the previous one, like in the 1930s and 40s, the British people in British politics would be hard to say India isn't paying her way. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, which is, quote, you know, you can translate that into English, which is, well, we've just sucked it dry. There's nothing left to, to get out mm -hmm. of it. And so we'll very high handedly give it back to them now. The, so, in, the interesting thing you'll find is that um, apologists for this kind of system of government will say, but we were generous. We gave them civilization. We gave them mm -hmm. railroads. We gave them all the stuff they didn't have. You know, we were just, we treated them fairly. They just reacted badly to us. Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of how I see it. I think it's similar to what you say. And I also, I, which I think tells us like, well, who's defining generous? Because from, yeah. which... Also, disclaimer, Mr. DZ is a Dubliner, just like Stephen. He's not English, but mm -hmm. he does, he's very Anglophilic. He loves England. That from an English person or an Anglophilic person's view, the English are very generous in bringing civilization and Christianity and all these other things they claim to bring as colonizers. But from the colonizee, the mm -hmm. colonized point of view, the Irish point of view, mm -hmm. they're quite the opposite. It's not very generous at all. No, the infant mortality rate in Dublin at that time was the highest in Europe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this uh, this claim is bunkum. Yeah. And granted, the working class conditions in Britain were a little better. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when, when your working classes are dying like dogs, mm -hmm. you know, um, then you have questions to answer. And this man isn't interested yeah. in answering them. But the, the, the way people interpret these words is quite slippery. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I, that's, that's how I've always, always interpreted it, is justice. Mm -hmm. We must also be just. Yeah. The, the, you know, the English must be just. But... Maybe in their own eyes they are. They've mm. enacted some kind of justice. But again, the people on the receiving end don't see it that way. Yeah. So it, it really does matter who's defining these and, you know, and terms. A lot of the side benefits that flow from this kind of mm. colonization are, aren't intended to mm. flow to you. I mean, you know, the Buddhist idea that every action has good and evil consequences. No matter what you do, something good or evil is going to mm. come out of it. You know, the old Monty Python Life of Brian sketch, what have the Romans ever done for us? I really hate that sketch because mm -hmm. it really is a nasty little piece of imperialistic uh, propaganda. The, like, well, the Romans gave us, you know, mm -hmm. this, that, and the other. Well, the Romans didn't go to Palestine to put in aqueducts for the benefit of the Palestinians. They mm -hmm. did it for the benefit of themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and any benefit the locals got from that was at, at the very least but secondary. But I guarantee you there were Romans who believed they were being generous and just well, to you, the Palestinians. You, yes, well, the Pushkin quote, mm -hmm. the, the lie that ennobles us is dearer to us than a thousand truths. That's the beautiful lie that all Im imperialists tell themselves. Mm -hmm. And I don't see any difference with DC or an ancient Roman mm -hmm. or any, uh, any a French imperialist, any imperialist. Mm -hmm. is going to have that attitude. They Which have to tell that. why these big, lofty words make someone like Stephen so unhappy. Right, because he sees mm -hmm. through them immediately. Because mm -hmm. the generosity that they're perpetrating on the Irish mm. has really caused them a lot of grief. Well, the, the country, they've gone from 8 million to 3 million over the course of 10 years. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there wasn't much generosity back then. Yeah. Hey, Dermot. Mm -hmm. Do you know what hippopoto monstro sesquipedaliophobia means? Fear of man-eating hippos? Ah, it's the, of, of monster hippos. <laughs> it, it means the fear of big words. So maybe Stephen just suffers from hippopoto monstro sesquipedaliophobia. <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, you could put that on a t-shirt and sell it at Walmart. Oh, uh, <laughs> they probably have. The irony is that if you truly do have a fear of big words, the name of your condition would be absolutely horrifying. Mm. All right. So as we talked about in our last episode, if you haven't listened to that one, it's called Fogey and Tori, and it kind of 
talks a little bit, there's some overlap between these two because it's a continuing conversation, uh, is that DZ sees himself as this, this great wise man, but he really has no wisdom to impart on Stephen. And he realizes he's hit a brick wall with uh, trying to, to get him excited about um, personal finance. Mm -hmm. So he moves to a new tactic to connect with Stephen in this section, which is to appeal to Stephen's sense of history. And he gathers courage. Read the, the quote there. Okay. Mr. DC stared sternly for some moments over the mantelpiece at the shapely bulk of a man in tartan filibags, Albert Edward, Prince of Wales. Thank you, Dermot. So, Mr. DZ is in his office, and he looks up over the mantelpiece, and who does he see? Who's Albert Edward? Uh, the future King Edward. He's current King Edward, 1904. Oh, by then, yeah, yeah. yeah. But at the time, I'm assuming he was the Prince of Wales, Albert Edward. So. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, the British royal family have this weird thing. I don't know why. Who cares? But um, they, uh, they'll they call themselves Bertie. You know, King Edward VI, Edward and Mrs. Simpson, was it? Mm -hmm. He was called Bertie by the family, Albert Edward. But when he became king, he became King Edward. Mm -hmm. You have to ask the Queen about that. I won't. I, she, uh, does, she never returns any of my no, phone calls. No, no. I, I call and I just hear corgis. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, it's Edward VII, who mm. I believe was the king in 1904. Okay. Um, and tartan bags. do you remember what that means? Hmm, not sure. It's a, it's a kilt. Yeah, I thought mm -hmm. a tartan would be a kilt. I don't know what a filibag is. A filibag is a kilt. Is a kilt? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah, the tartan is the design on it. Ah. He, he liked to wear a kilt. Um, you, you, we, which we use that photo in your picture where right. Mr. Deasy is kissing the feet of, <laughs> which has been featured on our site a couple of times. Um, the next line, we'll do a quick review of this because we kind of touched on it in the last episode as well. But you think me an old fogey and an old Tory? His thoughtful voice said. So this is what he's. He, this is his retort to Stevens. I fear those big words that make us so unhappy. Mm. Um, you think me an old fogey and an old Tory. What does that mean, Dermot? Uh, an old Tory, a member of the Conservative Party, uh, opponents of the Liberals or Whigs, depending on your point in history. Um, often, various points in history might have been seen more in line with uh, reactionary Catholic or traditionalist Catholic mm. types. You know? um, and the word Tory uh, also has an Irish root. Um, mm -hmm. Meaning a, a we, band. If, we talked we, about that in yeah. the last episode. Yeah, it's just, yeah, quick just a quick review. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So it means he's old and mm -hmm. he's an old, crusty conservative. Yeah. Yeah. Again, your conservative uncle, mm. or one's in a, a, a an archetypical conservative uncle. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, so his his next statement. I saw three generations since O'Connell's time. All right, and if you are an American reading this, you're probably saying, who is O'Connell? <laughs> Daniel O'Connell. All right. What, what's up with Daniel O'Connell? Uh, he was, I think, one of the first, uh, well, major 19th century uh, figures to emerge after mm -hmm. the penal laws to mm -hmm. agitate for uh, rights for Irish Catholics. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, we're going to have to back up um, a little bit just to make sure. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard Daniel O'Connell described as the, the most preeminent Irish politician of his day. He mm -hmm. was a really big deal. Um, his nickname was the Liberator. So it gives you an idea of how the Irish saw him. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, he pushed for civil rights for Catholic people. Um, after the 
Act of Union in 1801. And the Act of Union is? The law that I think unified the Irish jurisdiction with Britain as one yeah. political entity. Yeah, it brought yeah. Um, Ireland into the United Kingdom. Mm. I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, Scotland and the other parts kind of formed, or, you know, joined in around that same mm. time. Mm. Yeah, that's when the Union Jack appears as well. It's, like okay. a, it's a combination of the yeah. flag of Scotland, England, and one other. There you yeah. go. Yeah, and that's in 1801 mm. uh, when the Act of Union went became law. Um, so... The Act of Union is supported by people known as Unionists, who tend to be Protestants, and people in Ireland who oppose it were and are called Nationalists. They tend to be Catholic, mm -hmm. and they wanted to repeal the Act of Union so that Ireland can be an independent country. And the most radical of these are the Fenians, uh, the members of the... I'm trying to remember the name of the organization... I want to say the Fenian Brotherhood. Mm, I think it was, yeah. yeah. But they're called Fenians, and that's all you need to know for today's section because that word pops up again. The yeah, Like I said, they're the most radical. Rather than just petitioning or marching in the streets, they were more likely to blow things up and kill people in order to get what they wanted, uh, which, again, was independence for Ireland. So, um, Prior to this time... Um, Ireland was under a set of laws called the Penal Laws. You want to tell us something about that, Dermot? Well, basically, if you were Irish Catholic, it made sure mm -hmm. that life sucked for you even more than it would normally. Uh, if I remember, it serves right. Yeah, you couldn't own a horse, certainly couldn't vote, um, limits on, you know, you couldn't vote, all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you were very much, you weren't even a second-class citizen. You effectively weren't a citizen at all. Yeah. Yeah, um, under this law, Catholics were not allowed to vote. They also could not hold office, and I believe they were also forbidden from practicing law. Mm -hmm. So anything that they would come up against in that system of government, there there was absolutely no one in power who was on their side that could help them. Mm. They, I mean, they, you know, to the point where they, they couldn't even act as their own lawyers or, mm. or find a lawyer that was sympathetic to their culture. Mm. And yeah, they couldn't even own a horse. That's how disenfranchised and, they And were. again, this, this comes out of the 1798 rebellion as well, mm -hmm. um, which would have led to this crackdown. There was, yeah. but the penal laws predate right. the 1790s. Yeah, right. they, they're, I, I don't know how formally, but there, it had been for, I think, over a century by that point yeah. of various laws that just stripped Catholics of their right. rights. That's a reaction to it. Then mm -hmm. things get worse after yeah. 1798. Yeah. Um, so Daniel O'Connell ran for and was elected to Parliament in 1828, but uh-oh, he was Catholic. So that meant he was elected to a seat he couldn't legally take, um, and there was an ensuing legal battle over that, which he won, mm -hmm. and that effectively um, ended the penal laws, and it was referred to as Catholic emancipation. Right. So, um, lots more civil rights for Catholics at that time. The Catholic... Irish Catholic people were still discriminated against um, in England and even in Ireland and were definitely, uh, for many of them, you know, the underclass in their own country. Uh, so life didn't get easier for them, but um, there, there were rights that, that came along with that. Um, and Daniel O'Connell spent his political career fighting for the rights of Catholics into the 1840s when he began to campaign to repeal the Union. He was uh, unsuccessful. Um, he died, I want to say, 
1847 or 48. It was right as the, the famine was peaking, and, and he was very old by that time. And he traveled by ship to Italy to lobby the Pope for help because there was no famine relief coming in. Right. Um, and he died in that journey. I think he, he came down with some kind of sickness. Hmm. Oof. I was trying to have all my facts laid out here, but <laughs> some of this I am doing from memory. Um, so, yeah, he, he was a man who spent his life, um, you know, trying to get rights for um, Irish Catholic people in Ireland. And he, he was successful to a certain degree. I mean, the things he did were pretty big deals. Mm -hmm. yep. He was not able to repeal the Union, but um, Catholic emancipation was a really big deal. Huge turning point. Absolutely, and thus he's Daniel the Liberator O'Connell. Well, O'Connell Street's named after mm -hmm. him in the middle of Dublin. Yeah, which if you've never been to Dublin, is it's like the big main drag. It's number one. His death in the 1840s kind of coincides conveniently with the next line from Mr. Deasy. I remember the famine in 46. So this is the Irish famine or the Great Hunger um, on Goethe Moor is the Irish term for it. Mm -hmm. And how would how would you uh, encapsulate the, the Irish famine, Dermot, in the 1840s? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the lowest point of a very low story. Yeah. Uh, the Ir RTE, the Irish National Broadcaster, back in the oh, 80s or no, the 60s or 70s, did a radio show. It's like a 30-part radio show mm -hmm. about the famine. And there weren't any survivors still alive at the time, but there were people who had met survivors. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't first-hand, but it was second-hand mm -hmm. accounts they were being given. And I got, they put it up on their website, uh, around 2007. I got five episodes in and I had to stop listening mm -hmm. to it. And it has the quality of a nightmare when, when mm -hmm. you read the accounts. They, and I'll give you like a little flavor. One of the anecdotes was about a person who was, going back to their house and they were they were okay they weren't starving themselves but there were bodies by the side of the road with green foam coming out of their mouths because people were so hungry they would eat grass mm -hmm. and then of course you can't digest it and they would choke on the foam and they, there was a well near their house and there was just a woman standing by the well holding a baby and she was just looking down into the well and he had the sense she was going to jump into it so he talked her out, out of doing it and took her into her house gave her some small amount of food that he could give her and then he was trying to get something else to, to get to her and he turned around and she was gone and he looked around and he couldn't see her anywhere. So he, she may have just wandered off. But it, again, it has that dreamlike nightmarish mm -hmm. quality. Yeah. Um, and you wonder, did she die? Did the baby die? What happened? But story after story yeah. of these are coming at you and you say, I, I can't listen to this anymore. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's no happy ending. There's no resolution. It's just misery. Yeah. And... And then, you know, you know, you get a million or two million or whatever the number is. So there's some people fetishize the, the death toll. They want to be as high as possible because then it justifies atrocities against the British in, yeah. in retaliation. But bottom line, something like a million, two million maybe died. Another two to four emigrate. Mm -hmm. So the population before is eight million. Afterwards, it's more like three. And it stays at about three million until the last 15 years or so mm -hmm. when it's 20 years or so when it's finally gone up and broken four or four and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's my understanding that the the population decline from death and emigration at that time, like Ireland is still not back to pre-famine levels right, of right. population. And most of those people were, were subsisting on lumpen potato, on uh, the lumper potato, which mm -hmm. was the potato killed in the potato blight. Mm -hmm. um, but during the famine, I mean, we were exporting food. There were massive food mm -hmm. surplus that was going out of the country. So when people talk about the generosity and the justice of the British, it kind of leaves a 
foul taste yeah. in the mouth. And there was a recent TV show in Britain about Queen Victoria. And it did something very rare for British television. It, sh it showed a very realistic depiction of the potato famine. And on Twitter, all these British people were like shocked at, mm -hmm. at seeing this for the first time because they were really mm -hmm. unaware of how mm -hmm. horrific the, yeah. the, the event was. And uh, to which Irish people would reply, well, better late than never. Mm -hmm. But your concern comes like 140 years yeah. past sell-by or 150 years past sell-by. Yeah, it's it's absolutely shocking to hear about. We're only going to do a little summary of it here. But it's, yeah, it's one of the most shocking historical events that I've ever learned about because it was totally preventable. Mm. And its severity was caused in large part by economic policies that were imposed on Ireland by uh, the government in Westminster. Mm -hmm. in, in particular that, you know, they... Just mistake after mistake after mistake, and then, uh, you know, really just blaming the people who are so poor, refusing to believe that the famine was as bad as it was. Mm -hmm. If you would like to learn more about it, I have a, a couple of podcast recommendations. One is the Irish History Podcast by uh, Finn Dwyer. Um, he is still working on it. It's been like a two-year-long just epic series he's done about every aspect of the, the famine. Um is his series is really really good um if you're not if you want a little more concise uh history of it um the podcast stuff you should know did a episode i think called how famine works that covers it pretty um uh pretty well um but it's much shorter because it's just one 40 minute episode but one little comment that i would like to make is that a lot of people have like a very simplistic idea of mm -hmm. of the event in, in that irish good english bad and i, I would like to get a little bit beyond that but mm -hmm. one of the things that um, really exacerbated the problem was the as I understand it mm -hmm. when the Liberal Party was in government during the famine they made things far worse because they saw the Irish peasants as a parasitical class mm -hmm. they yep. also saw the British gentry who the Anglo-Irish gentry as a parasitical mm -hmm. class who were economically unviable mm -hmm. and it was a way to get rid of both of them yeah. So you have the Whigs or liberals in Britain conspiring not just against the, the Irish who were dying, but also against many mm -hmm. of the British landlords as well to make life as yeah. untenable for them as possible, which yes. made the entire thing worse. Yeah, and they, they felt that way because, as I understand it, the you know a lot of these, these British gentry or the Anglo-Irish gentry leading up to this time had a lot more wealth. They spent a lot of it mm -hmm. and then couldn't keep up the, these enormous country houses they built in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So they would dial up, you know, the rent on their, their tenant farmers right. or whatnot. Once the, the potato blight hit, it just wipes out everything. It's a monocrop. All they're growing are potatoes as, at that point, which was a policy put in place by the British. Mm -hmm. Ireland in the 18th century had a much more vibrant economy and there were this is in the Irish History Podcast here, all these other things that they grew or produced that were directed um, through England. So the only thing Ireland was producing was potatoes. Mm. Um, and these people, they're they have nothing. Their entire, you know, livelihood's been wiped out. Um, so that means that the landlords aren't collecting rent from their tenants, and then people start getting kicked off their land and evicted while they're starving. And that once the the famine subsides in the late 1840s, that leads nicely into the land war a few years later, which I think is probably a direct result from this, mm -hmm. of people being evicted from their own homes. Right. That d 
definitely pops up in Ulysses later, so we'll cover that when we come to it. But it, yeah, it's 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 unbelievably horrible. Hmm. So, Mr. Deasy says he can remember the famine. Obviously, he he made it through. Mm-hmm. So let's do a little math. Uh, 1904 is 57 years after the famine. So if we we look at uh, 1846, 1847 is sometimes called Black 47. That's when the the famine peaked. It's the worst year of it. So that means Mr. Deasy, by my estimate, if he's the headmaster of a school, he's probably in his 60s, maybe 70s. He's an older man. And to put it into perspective, 57 years before 2019 would be 1962, uh, which is roughly the same amount of time between our moment now in 2019 in modern America and the Kennedy assassination. Right. 1962. Plenty of people can remember. Two or three. Yeah. 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 So it's something that, you know, someone who's 22 like Stephen wouldn't remember. It would just seem kind of distant. Mm -hmm. But it's... And it's just, you know, at least like with, I feel like Kennedy now is kind of starting to pass. But when I was a kid, it was something people talked a lot about. People my parents' age can remember Kennedy's assassination. But so it's just a little little bit of perspective there. That's what DZ's trying to convey to Stephen. Like, I remember this horrible thing that happened. Stephen couldn't possibly remember it. Mm -hmm. Um, The only effects Stephen will feel uh, from this enormous tragedy are... They're not direct effects. Mm. Mr. Deasy here is using his age to appeal to Stephen. Uh, this is that kind of old wise man archetype we've talked about. Right. And while Deasy is certainly an old man, he does not seem to have gained the wisdom uh, to help Stephen out on his, his journey throughout the day. I kind of feel bad for Mr. Deasy that he lived through this horrible, horrible you know, experience of the famine so he probably think, Kelly, why are you picking on him and making fun of his lack of wisdom? Well, that brings us to the end of this paragraph and the last part we're going to discuss today. Do you know that the Orange Lodges agitated for a repeal of the Union 20 years before O'Connell did, or before the prelates of your communion denounced him as a demagogue? You Fenians forget some things. And now, Mr. Deasy's lack of wisdom. So is there anything about, so I, I think as an American reading this, we might be like, what the? All right. <laughs> That's cool. Cool story, bro. Mm-hmm. As an Irish person reading this, what, we'll get into the details in a moment. Well, what really jumps out to you? The, uh, the Orange Lodges are, are active today. They still exist in the north of Ireland. And, and you'll see the, the chaps with black suits and bowler hats and orange sashes marching down Catholic neighborhoods with big lamb bag drums on the 12th of July to put the Catholics or the Tigs in their place. So the idea that the Orange Lodges, their precursors, uh, uh, you know, were agitating uh, for, for Daniel O'Connell, or he's, he's sort of suggesting that they're somehow on O'Connell's side, uh, it, it would really make your head spin. Um, so, you know, this can't be right. There's, there's something wrong here, but you, I want to know, like, what, what would the roots of that wrongness be? Mm-hmm. So know? before we get into the roots of wrongness, mm-hmm. let's make sure that people know what we're talking about. Sure. We're going to start with the Orange Lodges. Yep. What's up with that? What's an Orange Lodge? Uh, William of Orange mm-hmm. uh, was the... And the I, I will jump in here and say our next episode is going to focus on this a lot more directly. Sure. So you can... I don't want to go too deep into it. Yeah. 
So yeah, the William of Orange was the monarch that the Ulster Protestant population looks up to as the he was the victor in the Battle of the Boyne in 1680 1680 something. Yeah, we'll get we'll get uh, that date for, and, for the next uh, episode. So much I care. Um, but he beat he defeated James the uh, Second, who was a, a right coward apparently, um, at the Battle of the Boyne in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much the end then of any chance of a Catholic monarchy in Britain. Mm -hmm. And so the Ulster Lodges, you know, revere William of Orange and who was a very interesting chap. You know, he's mm -hmm. not a villain of history or anything. And I, I, you know, I would be much more generous to him. Than, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people should be um, or, or might, might think worthy. So anyway, uh, the Orange Order takes her name from William of Orange. Sure. And uh, so the Orange Lodges are like a sort of, I guess, an order of... They're a fraternal, like a fraternal organization. Order. Yeah, like the Masons. Yeah, and, the first thing that jumps to mind are like the Freemasons. Right. So in general, if you're in an Orange Order, you're a Unionist, a Loyalist, and a Presbyterian. Mm -hmm. That would be, you know, the usual, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, I bet if you look at them really carefully, you'll probably find the occasional free-thinking Catholic or atheist or whatever. But no orange the, order. You might be surprised. Okay. You know, there are some uh, people who cross the divides. Okay. Um, not a lot of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not monolithic, and but it's so close to. As you can, not worry about it. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Where in Ireland are you likely to find? Orange Lodges, or these these little denominations of the Orange Society, later the Orange Order. Uh, Ulster, the northern mm -hmm. province, spe right. specifically the six counties mm -hmm. of Ulster in the north of Ireland. And there's one thing we're going to learn about Mr. Deasy as we go forward. He loves Ulster. Mm -hmm. um, he's a Dubliner, but he loves Ulster. And we'll, we'll talk about why in a further episode. But he's very pro-Ulster, which is the majority Protestant part of Ireland, and part of that society is this Orange Society, now called the Orange Order. And the Orange Society slash Orange Order is very famous for being unionists. I keep calling them the Orange Society because that's what they would have been called in O'Connell's day. Now we just call them the Orange Order, so we'll probably end up using those terms interchangeably, but just know the only differences, difference in time. But anyway, like I said, they're famously unionist. So the idea of them agitating to repeal the union before O'Connell did seems really unlikely to me. Mm -hmm. So the question I have is, is there any truth to Mr. Deasy's claim? Because my gut tells me that seems really wrong. From, from what I've read, and I'm not an expert on the Orange Order or the history of, it's a huge subject, and a lot of people from my background tend to not care, mm -hmm. is that initially when the Act of Union was implemented, many of them were annoyed by it, not because they wanted an independent Ireland for its mm -hmm. own sake. They liked ruling Ireland. Mm. They didn't want direct rule from London. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to be able to boss the locals around to their, to their heart's content without mm -hmm. having to answer to somebody in the Palace of Westminster. Mm -hmm. So the, any opposition to the Act of Union from the Orange Order types would not have been motivated by some Daniel O'Connell liberation movement. Mm -hmm. It wasn't to repeal the penal laws. It wasn't to allow Catholics to vote. It was, if anything, mm -hmm. it was to put the boot in them even harder. Um, and I think at some point they go through a political shift and they realize, no, unionism will work for us. So we can, uh, mm -hmm. we can work within that stricture. So I did a little research myself to answer this question. Don Gifford, who wrote a very famous annotation of Ulysses, described the 
the Orange Lodges or the Orange Society as an organization for the maintenance of British authority in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So right there, I'm just like, okay, mm -hmm. doesn't seem like they're going to be repealing yeah. anything. They And you're right, they did initially oppose the Act of Union, but by the time it was actually put into place in the early 1800s, they supported it. Yeah. So when it first came up, it, it, these things take time. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't like it at first, but by the time it, it was enacted, they, they were supporting it. And they n never agitated for repeal once it was right. enacted. Right. So it's possible that he's conflating the Orange Society with another group, which is called the Society of United Irishmen. That was a Catholic and Protestant mixed group um, that was active in the 1790s. Mm -hmm. And they did organize to end the penal laws and to and for what we now call Catholic emancipation. However, based on what I read, the the government at the time did not like them mm. because for obvious reasons they were you know going against the grain there. So the government um, backed the Orange Society in order to weaken this group and was successful. Right. This did happen about twenty years before O'Connell's rise to prominence. So. Eh. Mm. But I'm gonna I'm gonna put my stamp of disapproval on this. Yeah, I, I don't think it happened that way. It, I, it's an incredibly deceptive thing. I, I don't yeah. know where he got this from, and it makes me wonder if this was like a common misconception right. in Joyce's day. I don't know what what benefit you would get from believing this, mm -hmm. because the Orange Order, their whole raison d'être, is the opposite of what he's saying. Yeah. Um, so the next part there, he mentions the. Prelates of your communion, oh, oh, before the prelates of your communion denounced him as a demagogue. So the prelates of your communion are? The priests. Catholic bishops, mm -hmm. specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Of your communion would be Stephen's religion. Mm -hmm. So the leaders of, of Catholicism, the Catholic bishops, denounced O'Connell as a demagogue. Mm. What do you think about that? How... I don't know why they would have. Uh, again, this could be one of those odd things where they might have. Catholics are very strange about mm -hmm. politically have been very strange throughout the years about mm -hmm. various political things that you should think will be harmless to them. I know at, at this point in history, uh, well, what we were taught was that the a lot of the the Irish weren't allowed to be taught. They weren't allowed to read mm -hmm. or write. So there were hedge schools where the 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 Christian Brothers, being one organization founded to work around these penal laws, um, and that they would teach boys out in the fields, mm -hmm. um, you know, behind a hedge. That was the idea, probably in barns or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, but I think by later in the century, I, I, I wouldn't see like a huge gap between the Catholic Church and the people who would have yeah. been the successors of, of O'Connell, but I don't know. If okay, you know. so I did some research. Yeah. Uh, unlike Mr. DC. Yeah. I have the internet, which Mr. DC also didn't have, incidentally. Mm -hmm. So the bishops at the time... Didn't always agree with O'Connell, uh, but there's not really much evidence that they denounced him mm -hmm. as a demagogue. That I couldn't find any evidence for that. Um, they were more supportive of his push for Catholic emancipation than they were for the repeal of the Union. Mm -hmm. But if we put all this together, in Mr. Deasy's view, the Orange Society was more supportive of Daniel O'Connell, the famous liberator of Catholics, than the Catholic, Catholic bishopric of the time. Yeah, it's pretty spectacularly wrong. Uh, yeah, so I, and we'll talk about why that might be in a moment, but there's one more. The last line there, which you read, was, you Fenians forget some things. Mm. So he's positioning Stephen as a Fenian. He knows 
Stephen is Catholic, and so he automatically conflates Stephen's Catholicism, which is lapsing at this point with Fenianism, mm -hmm. which again are the most radical of the, the nationalists at that time in Ireland. Mm. Joyce, um, and by extension Stephen, was pretty ambivalent about Irish nationalism. Stephen, in, in portrait, not so much in Ulysses, but he refutes nationalism. Joyce, for his own part, was a follower of Charles Stuart Parnell, who we will we'll talk about at a later time. But uh, Parnell was pushing for devolution, home rule, rather than actual Irish independence. Mm -hmm. Joyce was much more in favor of that. He, he wasn't necessarily in his own life pushing for an independent Ireland. Although we do find out in the next episode that Stephen Dedalus hung out with noted Fenian Kevin Egan while he was studying in Paris. So maybe he had some fascination, but I don't know. From what you know of Stephen Dedalus, would you call him a Fenian? No. I absolutely would not. Hmm. No, he's, it's just not really his jam. If you support Parnell, you're not a Fenian. Yeah. You know, it looked like a Fenian to the likes of DC, mm -hmm. but no. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if Stephen ever speaks any words of support for Parnell. I know Joyce supported Parnell, but it's it's important to remember that James, while Stephen is Joyce's avatar in his novels, they're not the same person. So you have to be careful about mm -hmm. assuming, you know, A equals B. Um, but in, in any case, he's not a political radical. Mm -hmm. Although I, I do think he has some fascination with a political politically radical person. Sure. sure. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah. But we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to Proteus someday. So the last thing we need to resolve before we end here is this question. So we know that Mr. Deasy's wrong. Why does he say these things? I mean, the obvious answer is he just doesn't know he's wrong. But why might someone come to believe things that are so inaccurate? Well, if you're, again, to get back to what we said earlier, it's the beautiful lie. Mm -hmm. You know, he yeah. has to tell himself these lies so that he doesn't have to mm -hmm. face the consequences of his own parasitical mm -hmm. life. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I have a few theories. Number one is that he actually believes them. Mm -hmm. Like, he, he believes this is true. And the reason he believes them is because he wants to believe them. He's a Dubliner. He's Irish. He's as mm -hmm. Irish as Stephen. But his ancestors come from Ulster, and he's very proud of his Ulster roots, as we'll see. And in this version of history where the Orangemen, you know, um, persecuted Catholics, they become history's villain. Uh, the English in this become history's villain, and he loves the English. Mm. And no one wants to see their ancestors as the villains of history. I, I think we should, as American people, we should be very conscious of this mm -hmm. uh, when we, we think about our conception of our, our country on the world stage. And I imagine that British, young British people my age must feel the same way if they, you know, if you want to celebrate your country, it can be kind of hard sometimes because our history can be really ugly. Mm. But we tend to, when we look at it, and I will speak on the part of Americans, This we do this, and I think Mr. Deasy does this too, is that when we look at the past activities of the group of people we belong to, we see all the positives, you know, while ignoring the really glaring, disgusting negatives. Right. So... You know, if we look at the 19th century in America, we'll say, well, look at all the progress we made. You know, we built railroads. We, you know, built this huge, powerful, prosperous country that led, you know, the developed world into the new century. Mm -hmm. 
But we also like exterminated the Indians and we had slavery mm. and the way we treated the working classes in this country were horrific. Yeah. You know, so we don't like to talk about that so much though. Mm -hmm. Um, the way I was taught history was like, yeah, slavery was pretty bad, but we stopped doing that. So yeah, that's not it's good all enough. good. No, yeah. no, 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 it's not. not even close. And you know, the, yeah. the flip side is people go into the old oh, world, eat mea culpa, mm -hmm. mea culpa, and they they turn it into like just this like horror show of mm -hmm. awfulness, and that's also wrong. You know, you have to take in the whole thing, mm -hmm. and the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and like. I, I wouldn't like anyone to listen to this and think I hate Britain. I don't. I hate the the, the deliberate blindness that a lot of British people have to their own history. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking British people to dwell morbidly on the potato famine, but it would be really nice if they knew what had actually happened mm -hmm. and that that their country the was sat over happened. it, right, yeah. and that they benefited economically from a lot of the things that happened, or at least a certain class of British mm -hmm. people benefited. I don't think the British working classes yeah. in Manchester benefited very much, but. You know, there was definitely, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people that lived at the middle of an empire are parasitical on those in the colonies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's kind of willfully blind to ignore all of that. And just as people in Ireland today need to be conscious of all the god-awful things that the Irish state did during its first 80 mm -hmm. years, up to and including uh, aiding and abetting the abuse of children in industrial schools and under the watchful eyes of the Catholic Church, you know? Yeah. So um, that's what drives me nuts about. And that, I think getting back to a Josian quote, the nightmare of history, you know, that mm -hmm. this is what it is. It's like this nightmare. And you're not going to wake up from the nightmare by wallowing in the horror or by ignoring the horror. You have to just be kind of clinical about mm -hmm. it um, and, and take it all in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I personally, I love Britain. I, I love England. And most of the stuff I watch is from there. And I would be devastated in the morning if I woke up and the newspaper said England disappears from map. I would not be happy about that. Um, and yeah, I think they've done as, at least as much good as bad in the world. But they do themselves no favors by living in a fantasy land mm -hmm. in which, you know, they're this uh, Churchillian, you know, like yeah. bastion against Nazism, you know, because it leads to, as we spoke. Churchill to, was kind of a dirtbag anyway. As, as we've spoken so. about in a previous episode, it's this nostalgia trap that people yep. end up there living you go. in. And you, you live in a dream. Yeah. Like DC, he's, a, he's, he's living in a dream. Yeah. And a worldview that's already begun to pass him by. Yeah. So In his own lifetime. He's yeah. willfully ignoring it. You know? Yeah, I think um, I, I would say is that you know you always want to live in the center of the continuum if you are living at either of the poles mm. you know so if you're either britain never did anything wrong and we civilized all those <laughs> you know probably horrible <laughs> word that i don't ever want to say mm. or if you're on the other end and you're like oh my god they're the most evil vile thing that's ever crawled upon the face of the earth oh, a lot of irish americans come out with that Trust yeah me, we we talked mm. about the the anti-beatles oh, um i mean uh, both of those are, are just, they're not, they're, they're skewed views. Mm -hmm. um, the, find the middle path, I guess, yeah. would be my advice if you're looking for some. Um, well, that's Aristotelian as well. Oh, anyway. okay. Yeah. I always thought it was Buddhist. Well, maybe all great minds. Yeah. All right. Uh, a few more theories about why Mr. Deasy says these wrong things. He wants Stephen to listen to him and to be sympathetic towards his point of view. He's trying to appeal, he's trying to figure out how he can appeal to Stephen because I think he, he does genuinely care about Stephen to some extent. And so he's just, he's trying to say, look, like you think my point of view is so evil and old and crusty and conservative. 
but the guys you think are the bad guys were actually on your side, so you should support them. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it's nonsense, isn't it? It is nonsense, but it's <laughs> it's something that people attempt. It's a yeah. fallacious. Mm -hmm. um, and the final one, we, talk, we touched on this a bit in the last episode. I think he wants to save Stephen from his Catholic upbringing, that... I think there's a, a belief amongst Protestants of this period that the thing that's holding the Catholics back is their Catholicism, that that's what makes them weak and lazy, that it's a degenerate culture. Mm. So maybe if he can save Stephen from this Irishness, this Catholicness, and see him, allow him to see the greatness of the English and the Protestant worldview, yeah. he can save Stephen. You know, he can pull him over to the... The Anglican Church. Uh, or the, you know, just... The, the greatness of Ulster <laughs> and uh, Protestantism. Yeah. Mm. I, I wouldn't, I'm not saying it's a religious appeal. It's a cultural appeal. Mm. But uh, yeah, we, we talked a bit about that kind of religious chauvinism at the, the time. Right. Um, in our last episode, so we, we don't need to go into it again. Those are my theories. Do you have any anything to add to why does Mr. Deasy say these things? Well, just one little quick note too. Just, you know, people might be looking at unionism. I mean, the Dublin unionists tended to be Anglican. Mm. Uh, high church types and in the north of Ireland uh, it's Presbyterian so mm. the Dublin the typical Dublin unionists would more often than not be Anglican and middle class like DC mm -hmm. uh, whereas uh, in the north of Ireland they were more common to be working class Presbyterian so mm. we're talking about two different groups of people mm -hmm. now this chap obviously has Ulster connections so maybe mm -hmm. that's leapfrogging his uh, you know his uh, affinities or whatever but a lot of the Dublin unionists would have been a culturally very different mm -hmm. from the kind of people you meet in Belfast mm -hmm. so it's worth bearing in mind. It's not homogenous in that respect. Mm -hmm. You know, there would be yeah, big differences. Yeah, they're not a monolith them. by yeah. any And I, I mentioned Horace Plunkett in the last episode mm -hmm. too. A radically different person from Ian Paisley in the in the north of Ireland. You know, anybody in the DUP today. Just to warn people not to not to be too um, essentialist about these various categories mm -hmm. that we're talking about. Anything else you want to add before we close up shop? No. I think this is another good one. Hope so. Yeah. It's kind of one of the most like nitpicky, not nitpicky, but noodly uh, complex subjects. Like when I began just digging a bit into it, I just you, you go down a rabbit hole mm -hmm. with some of this stuff. You know? Yeah, any historic feud like this. So this could be North Korea, South Korea. It could be um, Catholic and Protestant, Israeli, hmm. Palestinians. Like it's really hard to tell who through the first stone. Yeah. Um, and by this point in history, it doesn't matter. Mm. Like, it's just, it's been going back and forth that there are lots of, lots of bad things done by both sides. Um, you know, I don't know where I'm going with this. Mm. But yeah, it's, I, I guess where I'm going with this is that I'm not trying to accuse any, any one side of, of being evil. I, I do feel like I'm kind of hard on the the, the orange men because they're pretty <laughs> they haven't done well, themselves any favors well really we're gonna dunk on them pretty hard in the next episode oh, so i'm holding back guys. a bit um yeah. but yeah we'll, we'll 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 have some fun with that in a couple <laughs> weeks um yeah I, I don't have much sympathy for them and i mean i am catholic so i'm not from ireland but you know i i, I do feel uh, some cultural affinity to catholics anywhere because that's my upbringing, even if I don't practice anymore. Hmm. So, anybody um, in America who wants like a key into the Ulster uh, mindset needs to bear in mind that when these people moved, when the Ulster Protestants, the planters, moved from the north of Ireland, Ulster, to America, they began being known as Scotch Irish. Mm -hmm. 
So if you know communities of Scotch-Irish people in America, they tend to be in the South and they tend to have certain cultural characteristics mm -hmm. that you'll find are remarkably similar to characteristics in Ulster. And about 20 years ago, I met the head of drama for BBC Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. and, and he said the most popular TV show in the north of Ireland is... The Dukes of Hazzard? Correct. And that, that's when I was... Google I, that, young people. I, I said, what the... And it wasn't until I read Joe Bajan's book, Deer Hunting with Jesus, that it all clicked mm. because he wrote about the connection between uh, Ulster Protestants moving to the American... predominantly the American South. And then that Dukes of Hazzard anecdote came rattling back and I thought, ah, oh, bingo, I get it now. So... That might also give you a key to how intractable the political problem mm -hmm. is because these people are very stubborn, very self-reliant, they're very resilient and they have a siege mentality that's really terrifying. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it makes finding a, a compromise or a, um, a treaty with them very, very difficult. And that's a great setup for our next episode, which will drop in two weeks, when, or where we discuss Stephen's rebuttal to Mr. Deasy's, Mr. Deasy's statements. Good, I'm good. I'm, yeah. I'm glad he has something to say about it. Yeah, well, I, not to get you too excited, but he just thinks it. He doesn't say it. <laughs> well, that's fine. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you in two weeks. See you then. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Please visit our website at bloomsandbarnacles.com to read our blog, which is updated weekly on Mondays with a new blog post and artwork about James Joyce's novel Ulysses, and you'll find a new podcast there as well fortnightly. We are on Facebook. You can search for our Facebook group, Blooms and Barnacles Podcast, on Facebook, and if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at BarnacleCast. You can find our podcast pretty much any place you find podcasts. That includes iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Go ahead and subscribe, and you won't have to remember which week we're dropping the podcast. Also, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes, as that helps our rankings and helps people find the podcast. And if you leave a positive review, we'll read it on the podcast. Finally, if you want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is through email. You can email us at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. Please send questions and comments, and... We'll read them on the show if we get any good ones. Until then, have a great two weeks, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.